uh, some things in your life. Uh, some of that is the enemy attack against you. And so what we want to do is try to understand what it means to do battle. And we're looking at four different battlefields. And so we've, uh, we've studied some things that I think are helpful to all of us. I hope they've been a blessing to you. And so I want to continue that series with you. We believe the Bible at Harvest Reading. Amen? And so we believe that it's inspired. We believe that God gave it. He breathed it out. It became written. And now we have it to study it and to understand it. But more than that, to actually apply it, right? We're going to live what the Bible says. That's what we want to do. And so um, we looked at the church and how the church can be a battlefield and how we need to be a unified, on-purpose, on-mission church. The enemy will try to divide Christians. Have you ever found that to be true? Churches are dividing and splitting all the time, and so we don't want that to happen at Harvest Reading. We want to be unified. We want to be on mission with him, and so, but the church can be a battlefield. We also looked at the conscience can be a battlefield and how we need to keep a clear conscience. We need to keep an honest conscience, a biblical conscience, and so Don handled the word of God on the conscience as a battlefield, and then last Lord's Day, we saw cosmic powers or the cosmos and how the spiritual dimension that is unseen with the natural eye but not unseen with the supernatural and spiritual eye uh, those are things that we need to understand too the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age now today's message i want to title when your culture becomes a battlefield when your culture becomes a battlefield so i want you to open your bibles to first john first john i'm going to spend some time with you there and uh, we're going to see what God's word has to say. Let me define what culture is. I have culture on the screen behind me. So if you would look at the screen, we're going to define what culture is. Here's some definitions. The arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievements. Uh, that would be uh, music. That could be literature. Uh, that could be the art forms. Here's another definition. Customary beliefs, social forms, traits of racial, religious, or social groups and a set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices. Now, all of these can be noble and good. We've been made in the image of God. An unsaved, non-Christian person is made in the image of God, and so out of that can come really some noble things, some good things. There can be some good artwork. There could be good music. There could be good uh, literature that is written. It's when all of these cultural things go over and extend themselves beyond boundaries, biblical boundaries, Holy Spirit-generated boundaries, when this culture moves into that realm where it's against the will of God or against the holiness of God, then culture becomes a battlefield. Does that make any sense? So culture in and of itself isn't sinful when it's defined like this. And we're going to look at some other things that we need to understand as believers. The world is a difficult place. The culture is a battlefield. When the will of God is violated by the world and violated by the culture, you know it has become a battlefield. All right, a little bit of trivia. Are you ready? A little bit of trivia. Who likes trivia here? Okay, this is music trivia. What classic Disney movie was the song, It's a Whole New World? We have Aladdin. We have a Disney fanatic here. We have another one back over there. They've memorized all of these. It's a whole new world. The world that we're living in is not the same world as maybe 60, 70 years ago. Our culture is dramatically changing. I was reading a book uh, named The Church in Babylon by Erwin Lutzer, and Ed Stetzer, who we got a chance to hear out in Chicago when we were there, uh, gives the, the foreword to this. And I just want to read just a brief little quote to you. Uh, Erwin Lutzer was the pastor of Moody Church out in Chicago for many years, and it's a very historic, very 
very good and faithful church in the midst of a, a very difficult city, Chicago. Here's what Ed Stetzer says in the foreword of this great book I just finished. Christians find themselves in a whole new world that is vastly different than the one in which many grew up. America is losing much of the general religious ethos that was our cultural norm for hundreds of years. The culture is becoming increasingly polarized as the world around us becomes more comfortable admitting that the secularization, which has been an undercurrent, is now mainstream. The question we come to this is, how should Christians relate to this new world where they have lost a home field advantage and are increasingly marginalized in popular culture? Ed goes on to say this, it is true that the American culture is becoming increasingly dissimilar to biblical values and that followers of Jesus have become increasingly marginalized, in some cases despised for their beliefs, values, and attitudes. People in America, according to Pew Research data, are less likely to identify with any particular religion, believe in God, pray daily, and attend church services. The Church in Babylon by Ed Stetzer. It's a great read if you get a chance. You want to borrow my copy, you're more than welcome to do that. When it comes to the culture invading or being invasive into Christians' lives, uh, if you can think of one medium, what particular thing would that be of all of the things that are out there? What would you think it would be? Technology. Anybody have said technology? Technology, uh, the inroads of the culture or of the world coming into our lives is phenomenal. In fact, here's some statistics. Every person in this room who has a smartphone and who has a smartphone, you want to hold it up? Hold it up. If you got a smartphone... You don't want to, some of you, it's in your pocket, right? You think I'm going to do something like call you out and have you come to the front here. I'm not. You'll spend 24 hours a week on your smartphone. Three hours and 35 minutes every day we'll spend on our smartphone. There are 77% of all humanity in our world are on social media. 80 times a day you'll touch your smartphone when you're on vacation. And when you're not on vacation, it's 300 times a day. Technology. Phenomenal, phenomenal. I, I, I found something that I just got to show you. I'm so excited about it. It's, a, it's an ancient artifact. I'm big into archaeology. I love history. And so I was at a museum recently, and I went in there, and I saw it. I was like, I got to show Harvest Reading this. It's just unbelievable. You don't see them much anymore. People aren't interacting with it much anymore. And it's in my, my bucket here. It is a, look at this, look at this. It's a book. It's a book. So technology, I want to give you a little homework assignment. I want you to watch an episode of Little House on the Prairie. You remember that show, Little House on the Prairie? All right, I want you to go on TV Land or whatever station that is, and, and I want you to watch that, and I want you to count in between each shot, like each shot. Michael, Eng was this Michael Ingalls? What was his name? Ingalls. Yeah, Landon Ingalls. Charles, Charles Ingalls, that's it. Charles, I want you to watch just a, a clip of maybe Little House in the Prairie, and then I want you to count between each frame. You're going to go about two or three seconds. You're going to get them talking. There's going to be about two or three seconds, then another you know, shot or image, and then two or three seconds. If you, if you do something today, and I want you to do this in comparison, I want you to watch a modern TV show of your choice, and I want you to count in between each shot. And watch, it's not even a second. And you're going to be like, come on, Charles, would you just hurry it up? You'll be like, oh, I want you to hurry. Because you're so conditioned by technology, your, your attention span is almost nil, especially our younger people. And so preaching is that much harder to do, to keep your attention. 
And so uh, this, is, this is technology is an invasive, intrusive, very dangerous, over-the-top uh, type of influence from the culture. Now, Neil Postman wrote a book about 25 years ago, 30 years ago I read it, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says this, and I want you to see what he says. He critiques the TV. Now, this is even before the Internet and before everything else. So he's looking at TV and the influence of that on American culture, and he says this. I'm quoting, to be unaware that a technology comes equipped with a program for social change to maintain that technology is neutral, to make the assumption that technology is always a friend to culture is at this late hour stupidity, plain and simple. He was writing this many, many years ago. He was like a prophet, not in a Christian sense, but he's seeing something as he's studying uh, society and culture at that time, that technology is, is definitely, there is definitely uh, um, an agenda. There's an agenda. Our culture is coming into people's homes on large doses and specifically through our smartphones. Now, am I, am I going to say, you know what, no more smartphones, just kind of get rid of it? No, I'm not like that. But I do think that we need to have discernment, amen? We need to have biblical thinking. Harry Blameyers, who wrote a book called The Christian Mind, again, many, many years ago, I picked it off the shelf. We're losing the Christian mind in evangelicalism. We don't know how to think as Christians anymore because the culture has so invaded our thinking that our, our mind is not no longer a Christian mind. It's another good book. It might, not, it might be hard to find. It might be out of print. Harry Blameyers, The Christian Mind. Let me do a couple of things up here as a way of illustration, and I want you to just think about something as I do this. So I just want you to kind of think. Don't say anything out loud. Sorry, Jess, I just got a little rain on your... All right. Just keep your thoughts to yourself right now. Don't say anything. Just think. What's going through your thoughts? Well, if you thought about something along the lines of luck or superstition that has come from the world, you've, you've been indoctrinated. And so if you say things like, good luck, there is no such thing as good. Where's good luck coming from? It's coming from the culture. It's not coming from evangelical, historic, orthodox Christianity. What we're saying when we say good luck is that there's a force outside the providence and the sovereignty of God that is leading our lives. Or causing consequences in our lives. And so there is no luck. It's, it's from the culture, and it's gotten into our thinking, and it's caused the Christian church to battle with things that it need not battle. Can we change some of our vocabulary as Christians and not say any more good luck? Are you with me on that? Because you'll find yourself saying it over and over again. Good luck. First John, I hope you're in your, your Bible. I just want you to look at chapter 1 real quick. John the Apostle's writing to some beloved people he loves. In verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. I'm in chapter 1, verse 1. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now he's talking about Jesus, the manifestation, the, the incarnation, Jesus that they have handled, heard, spoke with, slept around campfires, heard speak, do miracles. Verse 2, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you that 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now why is he saying this? Because in that day there was a pervasive teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is coming from a word meaning knowledge, secret knowledge. And they believed in that day that there was the secret divine spark, the secret divine knowledge that's inside of every human being. And you just need to tap into that. And if you can tap into that secret, mysterious knowledge, uh, then you're going to be understanding the mysteries of the world, the mysteries of life. There are beliefs today that believe that you have a spark of divinity inside of you. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit being in you. I'm talking about something else. And so Hinduism is very popular on this, that there is this spark of divinity inside of every human being. You just, need to, you just need to channel that. You need to connect with that force or that place inside of you. And there's one practice that is very popular in Christianity that I, for one, think you need to stay away from, and that is yoga. Yoga. And there is no such thing as a Christian form of yoga. Yoga is Hinduism. Yoga is tapping into this divine spark. It's just a modern form of Gnosticism where you can have this power, you can have this, this divinity apart from Jesus Christ, apart from historic Christianity and biblical Christianity, and you can't, John says. There's nothing new under the sun. So John is addressing this. And he's saying, wait a minute, Jesus, I touched. Jesus is real. I heard him speak. He's the Savior. And so he's going to outline all of 1 John trying to discern who is a real Christian and who is not? How can you tell if you're really converted or not? That's the theme of 1 John. Now go over to chapter 2, verses 15 down to verse 17. This is the text that I want to get into with you. When culture becomes a battlefield, and I want you to understand that I've been to some museums around the world, around you know, the United States, and I love history and I love art. And I love music, and I love all of those forms of culture. Francis Schaeffer is one of my heroes, and he loved culture. But he was one who was saying, you need to be careful, because when culture crosses over biblical lines and goes outside of the will of God, then that culture then becomes an enemy that you have to learn how to battle. And so I'm not advocating not going to museums or art shows or concerts or any of that. I'm just going to encourage you to use discernment, that's all. We're not anti-movie. Hey, we're meeting in a movie theater, right? And so we're not anti that, just using discernment. I want to go through these verses with you, just three verses. And there are three points, three things I want you to see about what it's going to take for us to battle on this cultural front. And so the first one is deep concern. I want to show you the deep concern that John the Apostle has for those who's writing to. Now, everybody has a deep concern. You have a deep concern about your kids, about your marriage, about making enough money to pay the bills. Everybody has a concern about the things of life. You're concerned maybe about our country. You're concerned about Harvest Redding. You're concerned about somebody close to you who's battling some cancer. You're concerned. Everybody has a deep concern. John has a deep concern here. I want you to look at verse 15. Here's John's concern for the readers that he's writing to. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this is massive. Don't go any further than that. Stop there. I want to look at the things of the world in point number two, but for this point, point number one, loving the world. What does John mean by the world? 
<laughs> That's the question. The Greek word is, again, cosmos, and we saw that last Lord's Day, and cosmos can mean out there in the invisible realm, the universe, uh, the unseen. It can mean that, but it also means some other things here. You'll see a verse here, the true light which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world, into the world of humanity. So we have to understand world. What's he talking about? World. He's talking about human beings. How about this one? John 3.16. Anybody know that verse? What's it say? Are we up there? John 3.16. For God so loved the, the what? The world. He's talking about human beings, humanity. This is the world. There's also another definition of the world, systems or structures, beliefs, ideas, and values. That's another definition of the world that John is going to give to us. We would call science the world of science. Or if it's politics, you would refer to it as the world of politics. Systems, values, structures. This is what this means. Maybe some other things. If you're a big sports fan, maybe years ago, you would remember the wide, what? The world of sports. If you're into watching Shamu do his thing, you would go to where? Sea world. <laughs> Systems, values, beliefs, all of those things. And then if you're big into Disney like Christy is, you would go to Orlando and go to what? Disney World. And so there's some definitions of the world. It's humanity. It's the systems and structures and values and beliefs. Here's what John's talking about. He's talking about systems of evil ordered by the unredeemed. He's talking about a fallen system. He's talking about a system that is dominated by Satan. This is the world that he's talking about. Do not love this world. Do not love, not the mountains, not human beings, but don't love the value system of unredeemed fallen people. This is where he's going with this. John MacArthur, who's a great Bible teacher, heavily influenced in my life, said this, and I'm quoting, the thinking processes of the unconverted. That's the world. The thinking processes of the unconverted. And when a Christian starts to think like a non-Christian, starts to act like a non-Christian, John the Apostle is saying, you have now loved the world. You've loved the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I think I have that on the screen. Let's look at this, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to what? The system, right? Unredeemed, fallen, sinful, outside the will of God, that system, but be transformed by the renewal. Harry Blamires was right. You need a Christian mind. We've lost the Christian mind. And that by testing, you may discern, we need discernment desperately, what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is where he's talking about. This is the world. His deep concern are for these believers, that these believers are, they're, they're taking the world and they're loving it. They're loving the world. And here's where he goes with this, because he's talking about the love of the Father is not in them. And I want you to hear this. And so if the person next to you is dozing off because it's warm in here, I want you to nudge them a little bit. Because if you love the world, if you're living in the world, and the world is your home, if you're thinking like an unconverted person, you're acting like an unconverted person, is this person a Christian, according to the Apostle John? He's saying no. The love of the Father is not in him. Remember, the whole theme of the letter is about 
distinguishing true Christians from false Christians, and the world has everything to do with it, and loving the world or not loving the world. I want you to see what James says in 4.4. I think I have it up here. He says, you adulterous people. Strong words from James. Do you not know that friendship with the system is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? Man, listen to this. You got some loved ones. You got sons or daughters. You got husbands or wives. You got cousins and aunts and uncles. You got grandparents. You got moms and dads. They're, they're in the world. They're in the world. They're, and they claim to be a Christian. They made a prayer. They prayed a prayer. And, and there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's not the love for Jesus. They're not following. They're not trying. They might trip and fall like we all do. I trip and fall, but I get back up. A true Christian will trip and fall, but always gets back up. But the one who goes into the world, lives in the world, loves the world, has no regard for anything else. And they say that they're a Christian. Are they a Christian? John would say no. That's what John is saying. It's very strong. James would say no. It's a strong words from John and James. Why? Because there are so many people that were coming around Jesus in that day, so many people flocking around. But he has a deep concern. Do you have a deep concern for that person that you know? I can think of somebody right now, I'm not going to mention their name in my family that I love. I've loved them for all of their life. And uh, they once walked with the Lord. They were so, supposedly, you know, they, they went to church and they were involved in Christian schools and all of that. And they carried a Bible and was a deacon and you know, did all of the things that I thought, you know, this is what a Christian is, and, and now they're not. I have a deep concern for them. Can you think of somebody that you have a deep concern for? Is it a daughter? Is it a son? Is it your spouse? John starts with a deep concern. And we need to pray that those people that are in the world and living in the world would have a concern about their condition, right? So pray that they would have this concern start to come inside of them. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be living like this. I shouldn't be living in the world. Number two, we'll call this the deceptive corruption. Now let's get to what James is saying. He says, all that is in the world. Can I ask you a question? What is worldliness? Has everybody ever heard that term before? Worldliness. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Help me. If, don't leave me up here by myself, right? Worldliness. What is worldliness? I, I really get a kick out of this through the years as a Christian. I'm thinking, what is worldliness? Because some people would say to me, well, that's worldly. You know, and so and everybody's telling each other what worldliness is. You know, some groups and some churches will think that worldliness are blue jeans. They think that the devil invented those things, blue jeans, you know. And it's like denim is of the devil, right? Come on. They think that tattoos are taboo. There are groups and people that believe this. They, they, they really think that this is worldliness, that long hair on guys. It's, it's, it's Ringo's fault. It's, it's John Lennon's fault. It's the Beatles, man. It's their fault. Long hair on guys, that, that's the world. That's the world. Or maybe rock music, but if you play it backwards, it's really worldly, you know? Or how about movies? And even Bambi's off limits to some of these people, right? Too much violence, you know? Bambi dies in that thing. So it's like, it gets really nutty. Christianity is nutty. And it's led by wing nuts. I get fired up about this. I got to be careful because I could get in the flesh right now real quick. So pray for me. There are some groups who, who really believe that godliness equals culottes. You're thinking, what are culottes? Culottes. I'm thinking like cauliflower. You know, I'm thinking Brussels sprouts. What are culottes? Do I put those on my plate? You know, do I put a little cheese sauce over my culottes? No, culottes are like really strange-looking half-breed of shorts. Culottes. Godliness? 
really? You're not worldly if you wear those? How about short hair on men? How about dresses? But it has to be below the knee. Has to be. How about suits on Sunday for men? This is godliness. This is what it means to not be worldly. How about King James versions of the Bible or hymns only or maybe homeschooling co-ops or, or maybe certain Bible colleges? They really think that this, this is not being worldly. Oh, listen, you can be as worldly as the devil and still be carrying that version, still be going to that school, still be wearing culottes, still be wearing dresses, still be wearing suits on Sunday. That has nothing to do with being worldly. Nothing to do with that. There's some people that believe that. When John is writing, there is no King James Version. Are we, are we clear on that? There's no hymn books. There's no homeschooling culottes. What did they call that, culottes? No, co-op, co-op. Sorry. So what's he talking about? Here we go. Watch the text. The desires of the flesh. Here it is. This is worldliness. The desires of the, it's the sensual appetites inside of our soul. It, it, it's, it's, it's this place where I want to I satisfy the longing of my heart in inappropriate ways. So I'm desiring things of the flesh, envy, jealousy. Have you ever struggled with jealousy? Think about that. That's the desire of the flesh. It's internal. It's not external. It's inside. It's not on the outside. Let's talk about gluttony for a second. <clears throat> you know what gluttony is, right? Yeah, I've heard one too many Baptist preachers pound, pound, dress code, hairstyle, versions, but they're pounding way too many Twinkies. Come on now. No, seriously, it's like these guys are huge. You know, they're on stage, their suit coat can't hardly button. I mean, if it does pop, the guy in the front row is going to be taken out. Of I mean, it's like it's craziness. Stop pounding on these things as if it's worldliness because you're a glutton. This is happening in the church. Desires of the flesh. It's, it's, it's living, it's having sex outside of marriage. It, it's, it's, it's lusting after these things that we should not be lusting after. The Apostle Paul talks about a list about being filled with the Spirit versus the, the desires of the flesh or being led by the flesh, and he mentions drunkenness. So if you're drinking way too much as a believer, then how do you know you're drinking too much? I don't know. Everybody's a little threshold there. This is why I think it's just healthy to stay away from it completely because you don't know, the hell, you don't know where that line is. And it's like once you cross that line, you're in drunkenness. That's the flesh. That's the desires of the flesh. It got awfully quiet in here. Desires of the eyes. Here's another. Here, this is worldliness right here. It's not those things I just listed a moment ago. This is what John's talking about. This is the world. This is what's in the world. It's the desires of the eyes. It's the external appetites. It's those things that I look at with my eyes, the temptations that I see. Samson was like that, right? Samson was looking, and he had problems with his eyes. And at the end of his life, what happened to his eyes? <laughs> he lost them. They were poked out. Ouch. 
about you're trying to lose weight. You're on the treadmill. Upon that, upon that. You're, I mean, you're at Planet Fitness, man. You're doing it. You're like, I need to lose 40, 50 pounds. It's going good for you. All of a sudden, there's this McDonald's commercial up on the screen there. It's a Big Mac. And you're looking at that thing, you know, and you're like, I just want that. I want that. Desires of the flesh. Desires of the eyes. You're looking at it. How about you're driving, I don't know, down... Uh, what is that Philadelphia Avenue in Shillington? Man, there's, they did that Mercedes place all over again. The dealership in, uh, on Shilling, in Shillington. Have you seen that place? Oh, the Mercedes, man. I mean, you're, you're driving by there, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I really need one of those things, and you can't afford it. That's a lust of the eyes. You go in there, you sign some papers, and you can't afford that. Your finances come crashing down. That's the world. How about the wife of the other guy? How about you come to church and you're looking at the other guy's wife and you're wanting that? You don't think that happens in churches? That happens in churches. Desires of the flesh. How about the images on the web, on the internet? He talks about pride of life. That's the third. It's, it's like a trifecto here. This is like, uh, what do they call that in horse racing? The triple crown. If you want to know how you're ever tempted, this is it in three ways. This is where it happens. So he talks about pride of life, which is boasting. Watch what Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, flesh meaning human. Not, not talking about sinful flesh. He's not a sinful person. With the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. Look at this. This is so good. Peter was like on fire here. But for the will of God, and John's going to say this. He's going to talk about the will of God. This is really the key to anybody who is not in the world but out of the world, who's, who's really saved and who's not. Verse 3, for the time that this past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. When it talks about Gentiles, that's another word for non-Christians. So you and I are Gentiles, unless you're a Jewish person. But he's referencing a non-Christian using the term Gentiles. And Peter's saying, listen, you used to be this way. You used to live this way as a Gentile. And so you don't want to do that anymore. Living in sensuality, there's those, this is the, that triple crown. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Can I just say, I, I, was, I was invited to, I was a new Christian at the time. I don't even think I was really born again, but I was invited to a drinking party by two Christian friends of mine. This is a long time ago. I was only 17 years old. And they brought me to this drinking party. And I didn't drink. I just Something inside of me was saying, no, no, don't do that. But these two Christians were getting drunk that were inviting me to come to church. And, and, and then after that, the guilt of the Lord was all over their face. And I remember looking. This is 30-plus years ago. I can still see his face because he, he, feel, he felt that guilt. Drinking parties. And lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Let me go to Genesis, because you've got to see this. Genesis, in the very beginning of humanity. I'm in Genesis. Where am I? Um, <clears throat> now, the serpent was more crafty. Crafty does not mean that the devil went to Michael's or Hobby Lobby, right? <laughs> I just need to clarify that. little Bible interpretation there. Because immediately you thought Hobby Lobby, right? And so, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, watch this. Did God actually say, so now there's doubting the words of the Lord, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, of, <clears throat> eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, your, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do I have another one? Watch this. So when the woman, watch, ooh, look at that. This is lust of the eyes. That the tree was good for lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eye. See what's happening. This is temptation. This is how it always happens. It happens internally. It happens through eyes. It happens through lust of the flesh. If the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's pride. Here's the, the triple crown. You see all three of these happening right here at the fall of humanity when the woman was deceived. And she also gave some to her husband. Hey, guys, listen. It's time to leave. It's time to leave. And so the woman was deceived. It wasn't Adam that was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. But who's held accountable? The fall of man is falling on who? Adam. So the demise of any church, of any family, is ultimately on who? The spiritual leader. It started way back here. It's all, it's, all, it's all outlined here. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're talking about a corruption here that started many, many years ago. I want to conclude with number three in your outline, the deteriorating conclusion. Verse 17, John mentions passing away. Passing away. He's not talking about somebody that's dying. He's talking about the system. He's talking about the world system, the way that they think, ungodly, against the will of the Lord, unholy, this system is passing away. It's deteriorating. The desires of the world are deteriorating. The desires of the world will not be as we see them to be. The world will not look the way that the world looks. All of this and our love for it is deteriorating. So why love it is what John is saying. Why would you love something that's deteriorating? It's coming to a conclusion. It's not going to be like this forever. And so we're not to love it. Listen, a cultural battlefield is before us, and we need to win on this cultural battlefield. And the world is nothing that's going to satisfy you. Listen, the world, the world, the world is like empty calories. It's like, it's like dead food. Do you know what dead food is? Can I show you a picture right there? You're like, no. Nah! It's dead food. There's no nutritional value. When you eat a pizza, you're getting almost no, it's because it's dead. We're eating dead things. The world is like that. So we're, Christians are turning to the world for nutrition. They're wanting something from the world, and it's not doing anything for their soul. It's not satisfying them. It's, it's like dead food. So every time you put pizza in your mouth, what's it doing to your body? Is it helping it? Is it making it healthier? Is it making it, is there real fuel there? It's nothing. It's dead. I mean, get a little bit with the tomato sauce. You're thinking, oh, I got some of the tomato. Come on, give me something for the tomato sauce. Give me something for the cheese. I mean, there's got to be something in the cheese. Don't do this to my pizza. Dead. Dead food. No nutrition. This is what John says. Those who do the will of God, that is not deteriorating. In fact, it's increasing. They abide forever. Notice the text. They abide forever. These are the people who truly know Christ. These are the people who are truly Christians. These are the ones that he's talking to 
And he's giving this deep concern of a warning about the world because the world is a very, very strong force. Would you agree? The culture is a strong force. I'm going to conclude now, so pay attention as much as you can because there's a man on the screen I want you to introduce to you. Do you see him? Anybody know who that is? That's Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is a godly man. Now, the culture he was living in, does anybody know? The culture that he was living in? Who was he going up against? Hitler. You're thinking, doggone, man, I go to work and it gets hard. Somebody makes fun of me, looks at me funny. Think about this guy. I mean, think about him going up against the Nazi regime. That's a strong culture. That is a battlefield that Diedrich is battling, and he wants to represent Jesus Christ faithfully. Do you know what happened to Diedrich Bonhoeffer? He was killed. He was martyred. He was shot. He wrote a good book called The Cost of Discipleship. I recommend that book and others. Listen, when you think that going to Twin Valley School and when you think they're going to King's Academy or High Point, young person, if you think that that culture is hard, just remember Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And if God can give grace and power and anointing for him to take a stand against that culture, he can certainly do it for you and I, right? And that goes for all of us who work in, in places that are hard and difficult. You can still go into that culture. You're not going to face Adolf Hitler. You might think your boss is Adolf Hitler, but... Oh, you don't know my boss. No, no, no. No, he's not even close to Adolf Hitler. Listen, we're keepers of the spring. Peter Lord, I think, is the one who... Let me, let me just read this. Watch this. This is called Keepers of the Spring. Peter Marshall, I'm sorry. Peter Marshall wrote this, and I want to read this. I want you to look at this with me. I'm going to read it out loud. I don't want you to miss this. Because God has called dads, pastor dads, to be keepers of the spring. That means the culture that is trying to get into your home. Again, not legalism. No, 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 don't go that far. But you, just discernment. That's all biblical thinking. Harry Blaine Myers, Christian mind. Let's sit back to discernment, biblical discernment. Culture's coming in. I'm going to set this up. And so we need to be a keeper of the spring. That means everything that's coming into our home, flowing into our families, into our kids, is healthy and good. When that stops, and we're not a keeper of the spring, Pastor Dad, everything will go wrong in your family. I'm a keeper of the spring of this church. That means what flows through here needs to be healthy so that you can drink it, you can learn from it, you can be blessed by it. Watch this. I'll read it out loud. Just follow along. High up in the hills above the village, an old man served as the keeper of the spring. He patrolled the mountainside and made sure that the spring that fed the village below was always clear of silt, leaves, and dead animals. Each day, the water tumbled down to the town, cold and pure. Gardens were refreshed, lawns turned green, and people had their thirst quenched. Summer and winter, the townspeople drank from its coolness and washed in its freshness. But the town faced a crisis, times were hard, and the council had a budget to cut, and someone noticed a small amount of money committed to the salary of the keeper of the springs. They decided that they would release him of his duties and end his salary because most people seldom saw him, and therefore they didn't even know who he was. They also persisted in the hope that the water would probably stay just as pure without this unknown guardian. For the first few weeks, the water seemed to be the same, clear and pure, but gradually a green scum developed on its surface and the leaves clogged with dirt and debris floated on the water. After a while, sickness came to the village and soon an epidemic raged, reaching to every home. The town council met again in an emergency session, and they realized that they had made a bad mistake, so they appointed a delegation to climb up on the mountain, 
find the old man and beg him to resume his former labors. Before long, pure water flowed down to the village again. Children laughed and played on the banks of the stream as they had in days gone by. You're a keeper of the springs. If you're a single mom, you're a keeper of the springs. Culture, be careful. Let's keep the springs. Does that make any sense? God is calling us, some of us, to say, you know what, Lord, I'm sorry. I haven't been a keeper of the springs. I've been living in the world too much in the world, loving the world too much. I need to come and do the will of the Lord. More than anything, I want to love the will of the Lord. Can we stand to our feet?